Welcome to the School of Calisthenics podcast with your hosts, Tim and Jacko. Before we jump into this week's amazing podcast, we're excited to announce a new partnership with Vivo Barefoot, who are sponsoring the School of Calisthenics podcast. They've got a special offer just for podcast listeners with using SOC15. You can get 15% off any Vivo Barefoot shoes. We have been using these, and let's uh, it's probably no small feat to say this is a game changer for your feet. And if you look after your feet, Timbo, your feet will look after you. Yeah, this one's an absolute no-brainer for me. Like we've we've got a pair of Vivo Barefoots, and they are literally my favourite pair of shoes. And they've even surpassed my cowboy boots, um, which I've interestingly, when I put those on now, having worn Vivos for some time and, and started to integrate more into barefoot running in them, doing trail runs in them, or training them, just generally wear them for lifestyle purposes as well. If I go back and put my other shoes on, my feet feel properly squashed in. Um, having the freedom of that wide sh- um, toe box on the Vivo on the Vivos is just. Yeah, it is like you say, it's a game changer, and I am a hundred percent sold and converted to the barefoot lifestyle. Yeah, I've even occasionally gone a little bit even more hardcore and literally gone out running without anything on, just actual bare feet. But for those that aren't familiar with um, with Vivo Barefoots um, and the benefits, is when you look at your normal shoe, how small that is in comparison to the size of your actual feet and where it wants to be. You may well have, like me. I had a, a little toe that was literally obsolete, um, couldn't move it, couldn't do anything with it. It's just been spent its whole life crushed up against the other feet. Um, and it was, wasn't something that really I was aware about. When I first got those Vivo Barefoots, it was almost like I looked at them, I was like, crikey, these are wide. Like, why do they need to be so wide? And one of the, it's sort of seeing how much space we actually do need for our for our shoes and for our feet to be able to move. And if your feet aren't functioning right and that's your stable point of contact with the floor, we know from Kinetic Chain Principles that's going to have an effect all the way up the chain. So, you know, speaking from for me and, and Tim, as you say, we have felt the benefit and uh, couldn't rate the the shoes high enough and uh, can't see myself going... Well, say, if you ever do go back to any of the other shoes that you've got, because it's, um, it's a bit hard to just throw all of your other shoes out all of a sudden, isn't it? But... Um, you, you notice that difference and spending more time having space for your feet to do what they need to do and be how they need to be is something that is going to help with our overall health and longevity. Yeah, for the visual learners amongst you, if you think what Jacko, you're wondering, wondering what do Jacko's toes look like? If you imagine a pack of Chipolata <laughs> sausages packed in, possibly the last box that everyone else has left on the shelf, that's what they were like. And he's now actually made some good progress. But if you want to get involved, you can use code, get 15% off. And the guys are super generous. There's a 100 day trial period. So wear them for 99 days. If you go, do you know what? These aren't for me. Send them back. They're cool with it. But I would be pretty sure you won't do that. You'll keep them and then you'll want to wear them all the time. Yeah, so the link is in the show notes. The code you need to use, once again, is SOC15. Get yourself 15% off. It's worth trying them out. You could have them for 99 days and then send them back, couldn't you? But uh, there's no chance that you will be wanting to send them back. And, uh, yeah, you can join us in the world of barefoot living. Let's, Let's get, get into this week's podcast. Roll that jingle. <laughs> This week, get ready to have your mind blown, or should I say your brain blown, because we have a Dr. Eric Cobb from Z Health talking all about neuroscience. 
Now it's fair to say that this is a fairly big subject, and if we if our podcast was an hour and a half, we probably would have covered it. But we then, could have a couple of days on this. <laughs> and he's got probably more than that for a lifetime. And he's been doing this and researching it for I think he said over twenty years. Uh, really interesting background and story how he got into it, and this has been a real game changer for us in terms of how we see the development of movement. Um, and even for me, looking back at a twelve year career in strength and conditioning, realizing that I've missed some pretty big rocks along the way. So this is an area that Jack and I are super interested in has a big benefit for but it's a little bit of a mind bender you've got to get into a different frame of mind when you start to take some of this stuff on board but have a listen to it and you'll feel probably by the end of it that we've only scratched the surface so there might be if you like it opportunity for a second round with dr cobb yeah i would get your notebook and pen out get ready and just uh, advice from me at the start is just open up the mind to the possibilities of uh, so much more that we need to know and understand about the brain and how it interacts with the whole of the rest of the body and embrace that complexity that Dr. Cobb is going to take you through. But there's some practical things to have a go at as well during it that uh, you'll be able to look out for and uh, really hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Sit back and enjoy Dr. Cobb on the School of Calisthenics podcast. All right, yes, it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Eric Cobb onto the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and taking a little bit of, a, of your day out to spend some time chatting to us about all things neurology-based. We're super excited to get into this. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. So we might refer to you as Dr. Cobb, as uh, Jacko as, as, um, likes to think that that's where all the emails and things come from as we go through the podcast. But um, Eric, just give us a little bit of a background as to what is Z-Health, because a lot of people won't have heard of it before. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, the work that you're involved in. Sure. Um, this is one of the questions I get quite often. Where does this come from? Who are you? So I, I'll give you my short spiel, and then if you have additional questions, just... Just dive in. Um, so ZL basically as a system is a brain-based or brain-driven neuroscience-driven approach to pain relief and performance enhancement. That's basically, in a nutshell, that's what we do. Uh, my background, I was a fairly high-level athlete when I was young. Um, I also had some weird biomechanical things that I didn't know about until later because I have a, had a bunch of birth defects. Uh, both skeletally and uh, gastrointestinally. So whenever I was a kid, I spent a bunch of time in the hospital. So on one side of my life, I had a lot of athleticism. Uh, and then on the other side, I also had a lot of pain. So like a lot of athletes, you work very hard. You try to find things to improve yourself. So by the time I was in my, uh, I guess, early 20s, I decided to pursue a medical career. Um, the career I was more interested in was from the athletic side than the, the actual patient care or pain side. So I tell people I basically went to school to figure out how to be a better athlete um, as opposed to uh, patient care. But I really fell in love with both sides of the equation. <clears throat> and what was, uh, I think, fortuitous for me and interesting was whenever I was in school in the early 90s uh, studying, I was studying to be a chiropractic physician here in the States. Um, a number of the doctors I was interning under had been to the Prague School of Medicine, so they studied in Czechoslovakia, and so I was introduced very early on to a more neurologically driven perspective on dealing with pain, dealing with movement, um, and as a result of some of my own issues, I also was a patient uh, in, uh, I had some doctors that had trained with Vladimir Yanda, others with Levitt, uh, some of the Voyager practitioners. And what was very frustrating for me was that here was this kind of cutting edge perspective and I didn't respond personally very well to a lot of those interventions. Uh, when I then 
got out into the real world and went into practice, I, I had a lot of frustration around some of the, what I would say were less than optimal results from more traditional manual therapy. So combining that with the idea that I was also still very much involved in athletics, my background is in tennis, I was a high level tennis player, but um, more than that was uh, martial arts and combatives. So I used to work, um, I used to teach military, police combatives, uh, and so I had kind of this, this weird blend going on in my head all the time of trying to figure out how do I solve athleticism problem, problems for people, how do I solve pain problems for people, and at some point it just kind of clicked that I needed to go backwards in time to looking at how do we actually function as human beings, what's the driver. Um, in school in the 90s, uh, I always tell people, if you're as old as I am, I'm almost a half century. I've been waiting to say that for a long time. Uh, if you're as old as I am, you have anatomy books that literally say things in the neurology section like um, the human brain develops until the age of 25, at which point development stops. Uh, and then from there, you know, it's just downhill to the grave. And obviously, we know that that's not the case. So I got very interested in neuroscience, very interested in neuroplasticity. And I think one of the... Uh, one of the keys for this for me was that as a tennis player, um, years, I can remember I was 11 years old, all right, and I was reading in Tennis Magazine. <laughs> I was reading an article, um, they were interviewing Bjorn Bork at the time, and now Bjorn, the man with the headband and the long hair, uh, was one of my, he was my favorite tennis player at the time. And so I tried to figure out everything that this guy did in training, and I read this article, and he described when he was a kid uh, that one of his coaches was frustrated because he moved his head a lot in, his, in wow. his ground strokes. So they came up with this idea of vision training. So he'd lay in bed, tied a tennis ball to a string, he'd lay in bed, he'd hit the tennis ball, and then he would just follow it with his eyes. I read that when I was 11, I was like, it's, it's good enough for Borg, it's good enough for me. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was very much into uh, that as an athlete, and then I started thinking about movement from that perspective to say, okay, how can visual dysfunctions influence movement? From there, you start looking at other input systems. So if the eyes are a problem, we need to address the eyes. If the inner ear is a problem, we need to address the inner ear. That's now led to a 20 year or so process of more and more anatomy and trying to take quite complicated topics and concepts and boil them down into assessments and drills that people can learn uh, for themselves or that you can teach other professionals. So um, my, again, ZL, that's basically the, the background, um, trying to solve a lot of problems that I was personally experiencing and then my clients were experiencing. Um, and then from my perspective, as I said, I'm, I'm very fascinated by how movement is built from a cohesive perspective. How do the eyes and the body interact? How does the vestibular system and the body interact? How does the brain receive input from the external systems, integrate all that information, and then turn that into a cool movement, whatever that movement may be, whether you're into calisthenics, if you're a fighter, you know. So I'm, I basically tell people Z-Health is about reverse engineering movement from the brain down as opposed to the bottom up. Uh, so we have a big blend of biomechanics um, with neurology because I, I get this question all the time, but what about biomechanics? Do they matter? Well, of course they matter, right? So we're just trying to present a, what I would consider to be a science-based holistic view of movement. Uh, and that's really kind of the, the foundation for, for what we are. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you the, your, your curriculum and the, and the information that you, that you guys are are putting out. When I stumbled across it um, as a result of Glenn put put us onto, it. I mean, I've been in the industry as, as a strength and conditioning coach since two thousand eight, and um, we probably met Glenn about two years ago. And I was thinking when I started to read into it, I was like, how have I gone for ten years of only working on a biomechanical basis and not thinking about training the vestibular system because it's and, and like you say that, that those inputs and, and we we get taught in our anatomy textbooks as we go through or our, our training textbooks about the kinetic chain principles and there's a box that says neural system and, and as far as mine went it was a bit around well there's force couples um let's move on to everything else and i said when jack and i found out and started reading into the z health um content i was like there's a whole area here which i've missed out for for basically all of my career um just give us a little bit of context on that because people listening will often be thinking about they're probably if they're uh, avid trainers or enthusiasts they'll be thinking about the uh, things from a very biomechanical perspective just give us a flavor of that because i really like what you guys did when you, you've got that um the diagram of the, all of the inputs that we're that the brain is actually dealing with so just take us through for, for people that are sort of new to this area that like this input sure. integration process sure. so yeah a couple of couple of basic ideas around this um one of the big things for me, my, one of my personal, I, I call it uh, you know, personal crusades, is we are very interested in seeing changes in the educational industry because all of us leave our training programs, even though maybe you've gone through a program that says, hey, we're gonna teach you about the neuromusculoskeletal system. That was my background. The fact is 90% or 95% was musculoskeletal. You know your origins, your insertions, even I don't even like those terms because I think they're incorrect. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of issues around stuff like that that are problematic. Uh, and most of our educational systems give lip service to the, the, neural, the neuro, you know, neurology or neural systems, but the education around them and using them specifically or targeting very specifically is something that's brand new. And a lot of that is related to a growth in technology uh, and a growth in our understanding of how the brain operates. So whenever I describe this for people very simply, I go, look, if you, the, the nervous system's quite orderly. Uh, when we don't understand it, it's our fault. It's not the nervous system's fault, right? It, it, it's pretty orderly. It does some really cool stuff and you have to have basic principles. So principle number one is it does three things. It takes in input. Now, whenever we talk about taking an input, there are three primary systems that are input systems for the brain. We have, first of all, what's called the extraceptive system. So extra external. So then whenever we think about the extraceptive system, what does that tell us? It tells us that we're going to be constantly taking in information from our external environment via our visual system, our, our auditory system, olfactory, gustatory, and tactile, right? So a lot of what the brain does is it's helping us survive by going, is that a lion or is that a, a, a dog, right? I need to be able to pick that up. So my visual system is really important. Uh, then we go into what is called the uh, interoceptive system. Interception is our brain receiving input from all of our internal sensors, but specifically around respiration, what's happening with our gut, our hormonal responses. Um, that is the interceptive system. And then the third system for inputs is called proprioception. And this is what most of us spend all of our time on in school. Uh, this is the mechanoreceptive input from joints, tendons, ligaments, joint capsules, skin. Uh, and that is basically to help us move accurately in three-dimensional space. So we have three systems that are all sending inputs. That's the first thing that the brain does is it needs to receive those inputs. Then the brain has to be able to uh, integrate those to make sure that my eyes, my auditory system, and my tactile system are all telling me the same thing all at the same time. 
Yeah. So we have to be able to integrate them, interpret them, and then we have to make a decision about what to do with that information. Um, I tell people I'm a movement chauvinist. I think everything that we do is designed to help us move through the world because it's how we enact our will in the world. Um, and if you look at a lot of the brain imaging, thinking is a form of movement. So our cognition, our movement through the world are built via input systems and then integration and interpretation of those inputs. So then step three in that cycle is the motor output. Now, the, the output could be, as I said, thinking. It could be a specific movement. And why I think this is so important is, as you're saying, you know, if we think about our audience who's listening, people that train, people that train others, people that have education in this material, the vast majority of our educational systems right now are what I call output-focused. They look So someone has a knee problem. Well, let's watch you move the knee. Well, what you're evaluating right now is the output. We're saying, I want you to make a conscious movement or maybe I do something to check the stability, but in both cases, we're looking at the end of the chain. Uh, and the ZL approach is to recognize that all three matter, right? So if we say you have a, a knee pain or you have uh, you know, your squat, you have dorsiflexion issues, whatever, rather than trying to focus simply on solving the output problem, we wanna recognize that the output problem may be originating from a problem anywhere in the input systems. So could a visual problem reduce your squat depth? Yes. Could a vestibular problem reduce your squat depth? Yes. Could a breathing problem? So if we start to think about these input systems as potential drivers for ultimate output issues, it really broadens your scope or view on what type of assessments you should be looking at and how biomechanics are very much driven by how the brain's perceiving the world, both the external and internal. And then is the brain healthy enough to be able to integrate that information and make good decisions about it? So that's kind of in a, in a nutshell why we do a lot of the stuff that we do. When you think that way, it, it's sometimes frustrating for people because they go, that's a lot to think about. And I go, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not my fault, right? I didn't design the system. <laughs> it just, you know, the, the nervous system came about however it came about. So it, we just have to figure out how to work with it. And I think, again, having these kind of structures that you can hold on to makes a big difference in your ultimate thought process. Yeah. I've got one just really quick example. I'll let Jacko jump in. And just one thing I wanted you to, to touch on, because it kind of, for me, was a real um, light bulb moment around this, um, around the brain's perception of threat. So mm -hmm. I know, for example, I, if I'm going to go for a run, I enjoy trail running. And if mm -hmm. I can do that quickly, then, then that's even better for me, especially for downhill sort of technical trails. If I've been sat at my computer all day and I go for a run and I go and try and run fast down a trail, after being more aware of this sort of thing, I could feel like I was just not able to, to compute what was going on just talk about how that would potentially limit performance or cause pain from a, from a brain's perception because it, it's a, it, when you can if people can think about some way where they might experience something similar it really brings this this importance yeah. of uh, what you're talking about to life sure i'll give you two different examples we'll start off with the one that you just used which is okay i've been sitting at my computer doing you know covid19 adjustment <laughs> business for the last <laughs> nine or ten hours you know uh and so let's start off with talking about the visual system right so whenever we were at reading distance or maybe computer screen distance our eyes are in a position called convergence all right now typically whenever we talk about eye convergence right so that means my eyes are moving medially inward as if i was crossing my eyes depending on the height of that, that is typically controlled by two different cranial nerves, cranial nerves three and four. 
Both of those nerves live in a part of the brainstem, or the, the nuclei for those nerves live in a part of the brainstem called the mesencephalon or midbrain. What's interesting about that area is when it is highly activated, it promotes increased flexion in the body. This is why over time when we see people reading a lot or they're overusing that convergence position of the eyes, they start to get into that anterior head carriage, right? Shoulders start to round, breathing is affected. So let's say it's you and you spend eight, 10 hours, you go, you know what, I gotta break this stress, I need to go out for a run. So you go to the top of the hill, what you have to recognize is that you've spent eight to 10 hours telling your brain that this focal length is the one that's important to me. Mm. So a lot of plastic change, right? Even though it's not permanent yet, a lot of things are changing in the brain to make you better at what you've been practicing for the last eight to 10 hours. And a part of that will be an increase in flexor tone, number one. So if you think about downhill running, number one, that's gonna be somewhat problematic because even a very small degree of increased flexion is gonna increase your downhill speed rate. So this is, these are just things that we look at all the time where, yeah, uh, habitual eye position or habitual eye use can predispose you to certain either flex or extensor tone issues. If you then apply that or see that um, in a given movement, it again may make it more difficult for you. It can absolutely inhibit performance. Um, you know, the example I always give when I talk about the eyes initially in computer use is that anterior head carriage. Tons, and this, was, this is actually one of the originating factors for me in Z Health, um, having patients come in with chronic neck pain, anterior head carriage, hyper, you know, hyperkyphotic thoracic spines. And from my musculoskeletal model, mobilization, manipulation, stretch, stretch, strengthen, strengthen, and it almost never worked, right? It, it would be temporary and they would feel better briefly. It wasn't until I started looking at the visual system and went, yeah, 10 minutes of deep neck flexor work a day is not going to overcome 12 hours of them having poor vision. Yeah. So that's just kind of one example uh, or two examples I can give you with uh, how we tend to think about performance deficits. Um, we are always interested in the overall neurologic picture because if you understand, again, these different brain areas, what connects to those brain areas, how those influence muscle tone and reflexive uh, stabilization, it actually starts to explain a tremendous amount about some of the issues that we see our athletes um, yeah. uh, having. I think that's one of the uh, one of the great things about about how you present all the information um, that sometimes when people come across it for the first time, it can seem like, oh, man, what did he just said? Like quite a few complicated words. Like, what does all this necessarily mean? And I know that. Um, but what you like, what you were saying there was going like trying to find like taking a holistic approach to this complex human body and trying to find like the root cause of things to make like lasting changes. And that, I think that resonate, that certainly resonated with us. And it res that, you know, that resonates, I think with everybody of going like, yes, we want to get to the root cause of like problems. And particularly in, and because we know that it's only when we, when we get to that root cause that we actually make lasting change rather than putting a plaster over something. And I know yeah. that when, when me and Tim first sort of, I think the word Tim used was like, it felt like Pandora's box when we first, uh, Glenn at the National Circus started talking to us a little bit about some of these things. And he did a couple of little like funny, uh, you know, eye tests and things for us. And then we were like testing a hamstring range of motion. It was like, what is going on? And it felt like hocus pocus at first. Yeah. But then when you start to, when you start to just break it down and, and use like some, and we, and we can do this as we go through, like some practical examples and, and things of going, well, actually, you know what? I know that when I close my eyes, balancing's harder. Like I know that, and so like it's play, 
that's playing a role. We just haven't really, from a traditional strength and conditioning, personal training sort of background and role, had, as Tim said, enough information or give us that detail of like, there is so much else going on in the body and we're, we're, we understand, we don't have to understand everything, but just understanding that everything's interconnected and therefore everything has the opportunity to have an effect on each other is almost like what, what you're saying. Like, and, yeah. uh, you know, that example, like sitting being bad for our posture because it tightens our hip flexors, that might just be one part of it, but you're talking about like, there's all these other, um, all these other things coming into into play potentially as well. And my encouragement for those listening, if you're hearing some of this stuff for the first time, it's a case of going, just be initially, just be, uh, don't be put off, be more, be accepting of like the concept that if this complex system, everything can affect something else and therefore like, okay, just start to question what are some of the things and what are some of the examples and the real life things that you've experienced yourself that actually start to connect to the dots on some of these things and answer like you said answer some questions why i can't ever change x y or z because i'm not actually getting to the root cause yeah i think that that is a a key idea that i think you're trying to share which is really a lot of this if you're very logical about it and you remain curious you will start to identify many of the issues that that you probably have personally um you know one of the Whenever I take a history with an athlete, one of the first things I ask them is, what's wrong? What have you already done? Because one of the things that I think is problematic in a lot of our traditional training, and this is very, this is very common, I think, in the strength conditioning field, because we know that adaptation takes time. Yeah. But what we often see, particularly in the rehab world, is a lot of athletes have been doing the same thing for not just weeks, but years. In order to try to solve a problem and it's still not solved um you know years ago whenever i was first in practice because i was a pretty good athlete and you know i had a big martial arts background i was used to moving bodies um people would come to me and i'd ask them hey have you seen an osteopath or another chiro or a massage therapist and most people had because i had a i had a kind of a interesting practice so i got a lot of failed cases so in the beginning, I, my ego was in control. And I'm like, well, I, I'm probably just better at mobilization, manipulation, manual therapy because I'm a better athlete, you know, and, and because, because I didn't know any better. Yeah. Now I recognize, look, the, the likelihood is if you've been doing a certain set of drills and you're, you're not responding, there's something else in the system that probably needs to be addressed. The human nervous system responds very quickly. And that's probably one of the big, uh, I think, you talked about some of the, you know, first drills and seeing immediate change in the body and how weird that is. When I tell people the nervous system is a little bit like a combination lock. If you can identify the three or four numbers, you can see change happen very, very quickly. Uh, On our Instagram, I think last week I put up a new study. that was actually quite interesting. It's a neuroscientist here in the States and they wanted to look at brain change and how quickly it occurred due to immobility. So three of the researchers just decided that they would cast their own arms and they would actually do a functional MRI every day to look at the map, the arm map in the uh, motor cortex and the sensory cortex, but particularly in the motor cortex. And there was, there was definable, noticeable change on MRI starting at 48 hours of immobility. They kept the cast on for two weeks and the, the connection between the brain and the arm just continued to decrease in that period of time. Uh, and, you know, I always tell people technology, the current imaging that we have, 
we know that those changes started sometime before 48 hours. It's just, it's not accurate enough at this stage to be able to detect it. So things do happen quickly. And the point that I'm, I'm always trying to get across to athletes is yes, hard work is important. Consistency and consistency is important. There's no way to become good at anything without those. But if we have been consistent and we have been doing hard work and we're not seeing success, maybe it's time to broaden our perspective and say, what are some other issues that could be involved in all this? So, you know, like I said, I always ask, what have you already been doing? Let's not do that. Let's try <laughs> yeah, which is logic. Yeah, which makes sense, doesn't it? People can get on board. There's an Einstein quote, isn't it? That um, madness uh, or insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting different results. But we all have done that at, at some to some degree. We've done things. Yeah, it's it's very strange uh, because it very much is how our industry is built. And as I said, I understand where it comes from, uh, but a lot of it comes down as well to this. I think our need for additional education to say, look. Um, you have this particular issue, we've tried a mechanical model, uh, you've made some progress, you're 30% better, but we're now 8, 12 weeks into this or three years into this. Or you've been plateaued at your deadlift for the last five months. Why? Right? Mm -hmm. Have we literally reached your genetic potential? No, probably not. I, I don't know that I, maybe one or two athletes in my entire career have I ever felt, I don't know if there's anywhere to go from here. Right? Everyone else has had some room and space to improve. We just had to find kind of the keys. So, um, you know, in a basic history on yourself, I actually get a lot of our students to take histories on themselves. I ask them, okay, well, let's start with your visual system. Have you, do you have visual problems? And most of the time people go, well, you know, they're kind of typical, nothing bad. Well, that's not the same as not having any. Um, and, then yeah. you, and then connecting those real life uh, self-assessments with more physical assessments, it's pretty easy, I think, for people to start to identify um, some of the issues that may be holding them back. And I, I tell people, uh, our curriculum is built this way. I only teach classes I wish I had been taught. And I teach very much in the way that I wish I had been taught, which is very physically. I'm an athlete, right? Yes, cool words, neuroscience, all sounds great. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to apply it physically. You have to be able to feel it in your own body because that is where the buy-in uh, eventually occurs for every athlete. So um, yeah, I think it's really important for people to have simple things to test, simple things to try, so that they can start to get an idea or understanding of how impactful many of our input systems are on the output. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. use a number of different sort of real simple, just um, helping people to to get a gauge on shoulder range of movement or something, and, and right. ask and and ask them to test, retest those um, pre and right. post our movement preparation. But there's one thing is that you mentioned right at the start about your um, sort of your, so a lot of your work is around trying to take very complex um, principles and, and make them very simple. And there's one thing which I think you, you, where you articulated that I think I can't remember exactly which part of your material, maybe on a blog that I read it, where it's just, if you finish a session and you're worse than when you started, your brain hasn't really liked what you've just done. Um, just touch on that a little bit because it's, it's an interesting one of most people come out of a session, if they're beaten up and they can't move, that was a great session, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> can't lift my arms. <laughs> I must've done something well. Uh, yeah. It's, I think this is this relates back to particularly talking about pain. I understand that as athletes, and like I said, I used to work with special operations in the military. So I understand that there are periods in a training program where particularly dependent on job requirement or sport requirement, that some level of discomfort makes sense. 
right? I, I think that everyone needs to build res resilience and toughness in isolated periods in their training. Because uh, I think that's, that's what as human beings we need to do. So what I'm talking about right now is not those specific toughness sections. Unfortunately, most people have taken that idea of I need to be incredibly tough against all forms of discomfort and said that applies to every training session. Um, that would be kind of like taking a race car and hoping that after every, every you know, 10 or 20 laps, it's dented up and bruised, right? Uh, that makes no sense. We know that the machine is going to wear down with repetitive levels of damage. So our end goal, what I'm always trying to get across to people, is focused on uh, one basic principle from physiology, which is a set principle, specific adaptation to impose demand. Most of us who are um, athletes ourselves or who work in an athletic environment, we have somewhere between maybe three, and if you have, you know, three hours per week, if you have a really hard training athlete who's not a pro, maybe 10 hours a week, uh, you know, in it, that, I think that's the typical training time that we get with most people. Um, what we need to recognize is that how they move through the world, how much pain they experience is very much going to be based off not just the time that they're with us, but in fact, the time that they're not with us. So I, being a movement chauvinist, or a, I guess if you want to call it that way, um, I'm very concerned always that my client leaves a training session moving better than when they walked in. Because if they leave the session moving better than when they walked in, we now have some opportunity for better movement qualities to become habitual for them. The idea that I need to go in to every training session and leave every training session feeling beaten up, I can't move my legs, I'm stiff because I'm so sore, etc., to me is somewhat counterintuitive to the development, the long-term development of better movement quality. Uh, so that's, I guess that's probably one of the points that I focus on a lot. Um, as I said, I, I never want to, you know, I never want to downplay the importance of hard or difficult training, but yeah. this is where programming comes in, yeah. right? And it, it's so important for us, particularly for our non-professional athletes and our non-first responders and non-military to go, look, you work in a bank, right? You don't want to be miserable uh, in the bank all day. Right? We're, we're trying to think about a long-term improvement for you. I always ask our coaches whenever I'm working with them, I say, will you be happy with where your body is if you continue training the way that you currently are 10 years from now? That is sometimes a, an eye-opener where they go, I'm yeah. not sure. Right? You, you wanna, you, obviously, we have to have our short-term plans, but movement quality is built over years. Uh, so you want to make sure that we're doing a lot of supportive work for that in the, the ultimate outcome of a training you know, training period. Yeah, Tim's coined the phrase for us: um, "Invest in your physical pension." And yeah, cool. you know, we're you know the majority of our our users there, like we're fitness enthusiasts. We're not doing calisthenics professionally or trying to win any competitions. We're we're investing in our physical pension. We're trying to move better. We're trying to be get strong and, and enjoy our training and sometimes the the goals that we may have of like the things we want to try and do because they motivate us and excite us can be potentially counterproductive to that sort of longevity and getting that mix right of like doing you know if you never if you never push yourself you never find out how good you could do or make this others and it's and it's a fine blend and i think people those of us and i put myself in this box that err on the wrong side of that 
you know it. When someone has this type of conversation, you know that you're that guy that like is trying to do too much, and like you know, you know, you know that intuitively. Well, you I know think, it because uh, you're in pain all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. You're knackered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mal, I'll have a day off tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> but um, yeah, with the um, one of the things that. Uh, I guess um, one of the we've been on um, we've been on your courses and you know can't recommend them highly enough um, to learn about this like applied uh, neuroscience in, in, into into like the training environment and one of the texts for reading is uh, or the pre course reading was uh, Norman Doidge's The Brain That Changes Itself which I had a, I had a head injury back in 2013 that ended my rugby career and I was interested in this like this sort of training of the brain and trying to see how it would recover etc and I'd I'd read that book and when I saw that that was you know like years before and I saw that was part of the part of the pre-course reading I was a bit like oh I didn't really I hadn't in my mind taken that and thought about applying that necessarily um to training but there's some really yeah I, I guess I'm just saying that there's some really interesting stuff that when you start to when you start to like just open the eyes up of going get yourself out of training in its in its like physical sense and think about all those other elements that that are going to affect on the body um that that really starts to open up avenues and open up doors and one of the things that you guys um do with that you know saying that the nervous system responds very quickly the test retest that you use, as Tim mentioned, we would do a, if we're going to do some like mobilization or preparation work for a handstand session that would be based on the shoulders, we would retest and test the, we would test and retest the shoulder. Whereas um, working from a neurological point of view, you very much would sort of, you do, you know, could test whatever you want. We're going to see whether the brain likes it. Um, just talk to us a little bit about it because, you know, sometimes we would do, you you might make someone do an eye thing or you might do, um, yeah, just give us some of the examples of like how does that actually like work together? Because someone listening that is coming on board with this for the first time, it, it may be going like, well, how can me doing this with my hand change how well my, my ankle flexibility happens? Do you yes. think that links in some of the other stuff? Yeah, this is probably one of the, um, I think it's one of the coolest conversations and what we'll actually do since we're doing this and we can see each other, we'll just do a couple of quick tests. Um, so let me start off with a, a little neurology around movement. All right. So since, since we're, we're here on the phone, uh, or on the video, uh, let's test internal shoulder rotation, right? So I just tell people get into a scarecrow position. If you're watching, do it with us uh, and try your internal external rotations. Just get an idea of your current range. Whenever you do range of motion testing, you want to make sure that you're five or 10 or 20 reps in before you start applying any kind of stimulus to make sure that you've kind of maximized um, your current movement capacity. All right. Now, whenever we're looking at movement, whether that be cervical range of motion, thoracic, whatever you're trying to work on, your ability to move smoothly and in a coordinated fashion has a voluntary component. It also has very much a reflexive component. So what we're usually testing, whenever we say, hey, we're gonna do this test and then we're gonna do an eye drill and then we're gonna retest, we yeah. are looking at the reflexive, what I call symphony of uh, motor coordination around a given joint. We know that if I'm trying to do internal rotation, I am basically trying to increase activation of internal rotators, reflexors. 
I must also, in order to increase that range of motion, I must also decrease uh, firing rates in my extensors or external rotators, yeah. right? So we know that. I get very frustrated because when people talk about movement, we talk about kind of the, you know, the deflection and extension, it's, they're actually all happening at the same time, right? There, there's no such thing as just a flexion movement or a extension movement because everything is about the symphony between these two uh, systems. Yeah. So neurologically, when you look at muscle tone, what we're basically seeing on a reflexive level is that your brainstem. Now your brainstem has three major parts. The top of it is called the midbrain or mesencephalon. That's where I talked about the eye nuclei. Yeah. Underneath that is called the pons. Pons is this kind of big bump. Uh, if you've ever seen pictures of the brainstem, it's kind of this big half orange looking thing. And then underneath that is the medulla. Uh, and then attached to the back of the brain, then it's called the cerebellum, right? That's the little brain that sits at the back of the big brain. Yeah. So if you look at what these structures do, the top, the, mid, the midbrain and the medulla, when those uh, when neurons within those two areas are activated, they tend to increase flexor tone. When you look at the pons and the cerebellum, when stimulated, they tend to increase extensor tone. So what we basically see is we have two primal systems or primal anatomy areas for flexion and two yeah. primal anatomy areas for extension. So whenever we are testing something like an internal shoulder range of motion, and we do something and we improve you, basically what we're saying is that your brain is working in a more cooperative fashion and it is it's actually facilitating a more balanced amount of flexor and extensor tone than what you had previously. Yeah. So it's going to that root cause, like you go into that root cause of like where, right. where is this actually, when you go into an organization, where is that actually coming from? And rather than just going, Okay, it's because this muscle's this muscle in particular is tight. It might be tight, but it's like go into the the reason behind why that has happened. Yeah. Why is that right? So muscles are basically a muscle function is basically a reflection of your brain's current perceptions about how safe it is. You know, if you've ever been in a fight or you've ever been in a car accident, what happens? You don't tend to get super relaxed, <laughs> right? You tend to startle. You get tense and tight. So the more threatened our brain feels the more likely we are to have inappropriate amounts of tension, uh, particularly in the flexors. And what you'll generally see is that we're, as human beings, our primary strategy for safety is get small and get tight, right? So we shrink, we flex. Um, so a lot of times this is in, in the strength and conditioning world, this is why we see now so much focus on posterior chain, posterior chain, posterior chain. What we're trying to counteract is a lot of midbrain and medulla overactivation for many people. So as a, again, since people are maybe watching this, let's try it. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little exercise for each part of the brainstem. And we're going to see what happens with our shoulder motion. All right. So go back, retest your shoulder flex or internal rotation. So we'll start at the midbrain. All right. So for the midbrain, we'll do a little pencil push-up. This is a pretty simple idea. You can use your thumb, use a pen, a pencil, hold it out in front of you. And all that you're going to do is focus on the tip and bring the tip all the way to your nose. And you should feel like your eyes are crossing. So do that three or four times. Just push it in and out. Um, if you get dizzy when you're doing this, keep going. No, don't. Uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> you failed. <laughs> you failed, exactly. So three or four reps. And what we're doing right now is we're activating that midbrain, right? We're causing these eye muscles to become uh, more active. 
You can put the pin down, you can retest and see if it created a change for you. Yeah, that actually feels easier. <laughs> okay, so better for you. A little change, but not so much. Yeah, a little bit. It feels a little bit easier. Okay. So that's version one, right? So we just did one thing for the midbrain. Maybe we saw an improvement in flexion, an improvement in synergy, maybe we did. Uh, so now we'll, we'll skip. So that was the midbrain. We want to look at the other part of the brainstem that's involved in flexion to begin with. Um, that's the medulla. Now in the medulla, it's a little weird because you have cranial, the cranial nerves that live in that part of the brain. They're numbered 9, 10, 11, and 12. And these are basically involved in tongue movements, trap movements, uh, humming, gargling, uh, and, um, and vocal production. Mm. So when you look at something like yoga, right, and people are doing yogic um, meditation with humming, yeah. what they're basically doing is they're stimulating the medulla. Uh, and this is why the vagus nerve is cranial nerve yeah. 10. A lot of people have heard of the vagus nerve and how that calms you down, improves your breathing, makes your digestion better. Well, one well-known way for stimulating the vagus nerve is humming, and that's because of the muscles that the medulla is involved in um, controlling. So what we'll do, again, just to see what happens with our arm, um, I'm, and again, this is all weird, I get it. Sounds so, like we're going to hum. Yep. You're not going to hum. I'm not going to make you hum. Oh, oh, I'm <laughs> down with humming. I've got a great hummer. <laughs> what we'll do instead is we'll do a little tongue exercise, all right? Um, so the tongue is controlled by cranial nerve 12. Um, and so one of the first things I have people do is I just have them do what an exercise I call around the world. So you keep your lips closed so you don't look too weird. And then you just start moving the tongue around the front of the mouth and the teeth. And then as you get better, you try and go a little further back, do about five reps in one direction, five reps in the other direction. You may find this looks, this looks great. If any people could see this. Yeah, it is fantastic. Um, it may look weird, uh, and it may actually feel really uncoordinated in one direction. You may go, eh, to the right's good, to the left's not so good. So again, after you've done five or ten reps of that, we know what we've activated the medulla a little bit more. Now, you may be better, may be worse, no, may be no change, but then what we're trying to figure out is just, are you responding to that? Yeah, I think that, that, def that feels better yeah. for you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So... That's kind of an example of how knowing where things live in the brain hmm. and what movements activate those areas can then carry over into this reflexive control of tone. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now from here, um, we just... You're basically try you're trying to play with that tone so that you okay. can allow for better movement to happen. Yeah, um, a lot of this comes from stretching research, just so you guys know. Um, if you're not familiar with, with stretching, right? If you, if you look at the vast majority of research on stretching, we all know that almost nothing happens locally. Right? Mm -hmm. You can stretch for years and see very little change in, in ligament length or fascial length or fascicle length in the muscles. So what most current research on stretching, stretching shows is that you get better at it because you get more comfortable with it. It's, it's called increased stretch tolerance. Uh, and it's very interesting to find that we can improve flexibility very quickly in people simply by giving them drills yeah. that alter this overall tone. Uh, and that's, so this is just kind of another example of that. So to take this one step further, because we've, we've done two exercises and the two that we did were to increase flexor tone, yeah. right? To see what happens with our range of motion. But remember all movement is a blend of flexion and extension. 
So is it possible that my restricted shoulder internal rotation is not because I cannot activate the flexors, but is in fact it's because I cannot what? Inhibit. Yeah. Inhibit the extensors. Yeah. So now we can go back to our brain areas. Uh, so we'll, we, we worked first on the midbrain and the mesencephal, or the medulla. Now we're going to talk about the pons. Right? So the pons is, is uh, right in the middle. It has a, uh, the four cranial nerves that live in the pons are five, six, seven, and eight. And they control a lot of different things. This is a hugely important area because it controls facial expression, our ability to chew, um, and some eye movements. More specifically, it also has the cranial nerve for our vestibular system. So what we can do is we can do a quick vestibular drill, uh, which should influence our extensors, and then we'll just retest from there. Does that make sense? Yep. All right, so for this one, we'll go back. Um, we'll just use our thumb, all right? And we're going to do, this is, again, this is the most gross <laughs> manifestation I can give you of these <laughs> exercises. So understand there's a lot more detail to it. Uh, but Look, we're, we're, we're on board. We're in. We're 50 <laughs> minutes into this. We're, we're game. Just hold your thumb out in front of you, look at your thumbnail, and you want to get it at a, at a distance from your eyes where it's relatively clear. All right, because what the, the drill here is I want you to look at a visual target, make sure that that visual target is clear, and then you're going to flex your chin down about 15 degrees or so. And then from there, you're just going to start moving your head right and left. Now, your eyes need to stay fixated on the thumb. If it becomes unclear, you need to slow down. Okay, and good, relax. Do that 15, 20 times as long as it doesn't make you dizzy. And notice that's a pretty small uh, restricted head movement. If we were teaching this in a course, we'd say we want you to use a metronome, do 120 to 180 beats per minute would be your, your timing, and that should be enough. All right, so now having done that, are you dizzy or are you okay? I'm okay. Okay. Now Still standing. See if that made a bigger, <laughs> yeah, a bigger difference for you in terms of range of motion. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely some improvements, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. And it's are, and it's it's e it feels e it it feels smoother. You know, you talk about smooth. It yeah. it feels smoother, and I think that the range feels better as well. Cool. So again, all that I'm trying to show here is. These are simple examples of why there, there are many systems that are going to play into how much freedom you have around the joint. Yeah. So is it possible, again, that I lack ankle dorsiflexion because of a local problem in the ankle? Well, of course. But is it also possible that I lack ankle dorsiflexion because uh, I have a tone imbalance uh, because of some of these issues that are you know, higher up in the brainstem or even in the cortical areas. Yeah. So this is basically what we spend all day talking about and trying to think through with our clients. Yeah. The most important thing is to recognize that you can create really significant changes with very minimal amounts of stimulus. Mm. And that's, I think that's probably one of the, the cool things. It's also what freaks people out at first when they get into neurology, where they go, that's, that's magic. It's like voodoo. And I'm like, no, it's actually science. The problem is that it's not science that we're 
that familiar with yet. Yeah. yeah. I'll just at this point point people to your blog, Eric. Um, I, I'm on your mailing list and you've got so many of these drills that you, you, <laughs> you drip into people's um, inboxes, but really useful stuff. Like it's for people that are listening to this, wanting to try it, some of the visual drills and, and you're often giving out really helpful tips on shoulder pain or wrist pain, which is a common sort of um, ailment that a lot of our community will experience because of the nature of calisthenics. So um, I'm definitely going to check that out. I've got one question I really wanted to ask uh, ask you since I started getting into, into Z Health a bit around pain. And just, I'm going to phrase this off the top of my head in terms of, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to articulate it right, but can pain become a learnt behavior if it's chronic? If someone's been in pain for a long time, like this, this, I've read something in your material and I haven't fully understood it, but how do you break that pain cycle if the, it might not actually be that there is something causing pain anymore, but your system or your nervous system is like on red alert and it thinks there's still a problem? Yeah. So this can be a, a very long conversation <laughs> or a short conversation. So I'm gonna do Neurology short always seems like a long conversation. Does <laughs> yeah. it seem to be short conversations? <laughs> so. yeah. exactly. The answer short. is yes. <laughs> Let's move on. Next question. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, the answer is yes. Pain can absolutely become a learned behavior. Now, the, the term that you will see applied to this is what's called a pain neurosignature. And basically what that means, and I, I'll just try and summarize a lot of pain neuroscience in about 30 seconds. <laughs> whenever, we take, whenever we take imaging of a brain and we look at people who are experiencing pain, there has been identified a grouping of different pain structures, and those structures have been given the name the neuromatrix. Now, the neuromatrix involves things that are not involved just in sensation, because the whole goal of pain is to alter behavior so that you can survive. So whenever we look at the brain, we see areas involved in focus and concentration in memory uh, that become active when people are having a pain experience. Now, what's also interesting is that if we look at 20 people who are currently experiencing right knee pain, and we look at their brains, all of them will show activation within these areas of the neuromatrix, but they will show differing levels of activation individually. So we tell people that your pain is a little bit like your fingerprint or like your signature. It's very unique to you. So it is, in, it is possible over time with practice to become very, very good at experiencing a given pain. Uh, because basically the way our brains work is it receives a stimulus and then it needs to create some kind of behavioral response to that stimulus. Pain is one, as human beings, pain is one of our most powerful behavior change tools. Mm, yeah. When you're in pain, it makes you do things differently. You move differently, you walk differently, you think differently, you interact differently. So let's imagine that we have someone who has had, um, you know, maybe they had a knee injury, had an ACL repair, whatever. The rehab didn't go great, uh, and as a result, they've had some ongoing achy pain for years, and they've got some limited range of motion, and they're like a typical person to go, I'll deal with it. Now, they spend one or two years moving oddly on that, and they've got a really well-developed pain signature. They wake up one morning. They immediately get into an argument with their partner, and all of a sudden, they try to get out of bed. They're like, oh, my God, my knee it hasn't bothered me for the last four weeks. Why is that? Well, your brain was responding to the threat that morning of an argument with your partner. But because our brain is not great at long-term planning at a, at, a, at a primal level, it just wants to change something. So it is very common to see a re-engagement 
of a pre-existing pain neurosignature from some kind of other threat. So the way that I always try to get across it, get this across to clients to go, listen, pain does not equal injury. It does not. That is the biggest fault of our current educational model. People assume that if something hurts, something must be injured, and that has absolutely been 100% proven to be incorrect. You can have pain with no injury, and that is actually the most common type of pain we, we experience. So whenever we start dealing with breaking that, that um, pain habit, if you want to call it that, this is one of the reasons we get so much so deeply into some of the neurology. Because when someone has a pre-existing pain pattern, it has multiple components to it. I tell people it's called, it, we call it chunking. Um, if you ever think about how you remember phone numbers, we don't remember a phone number one digit at a time. We normally group it in twos or threes or fours, depending on what country you live in. So we build what I call pain chunks. That's an easier thing for people to remember than a neurosignature. So we have to figure out what is involved in that current pain chunk and then give you drills to counteract that. Uh, as, in a, as a classic example, some of you can do this if you're listening, try it on someone. If you have a friend or a family member who has had a pain history, right? Um, if you ask them to tell you about the initial injury, let's say they, they were in a car accident. Um, if you watch them, as they're relating the story to you, they will typically put their eyes into a specific position. If you wait another week and you ask them about it again, we actually tend to, again, even chunk our memories uh, using specific breathing patterns, specific visual positions. Uh, so some of what we try and do is identify that and give some drills to maybe counteract it. Uh, so it's a huge topic, but the simple answer is yes, pain can become learned, it can become habitual, and it can have nothing to do whatsoever with an injury. It's just that your brain is feeling stressed out or threatened, and rather than spend the energy to create a new pain, your brain will typically default to any pain that you've had long enough that it finds easy to reproduce. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I've, there's a few people in my in my family um, who experienced chronic pain and have had it for a long time. Um, but the, the current medical model is, well, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? We're going to do a surgery. Um, and this is the sort of stuff that you're, that you're talking about. I'm hopeful at some point I'll be able to try and help them with some ideas to see. But it, they've also got to be open to it, which is a, a secondary conversation. Because <laughs> they're, 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 well, they're, they're, they're just older and, yeah, it's, it's voodoo, right? So. <laughs> but yeah, it's really, thanks for that. It's really, uh, really useful to... Um, to, to talk through some of this stuff. And I, I feel like this current conversation could have gone on for easily another. I feel like we've not even broken the surface of this yet. So um, possibly if, if, if everyone, people listening are, are wanting, they're interested, then we would love to potentially look at a second part if, uh, if we could do that down the line, maybe. Okay. I'd be happy to do that. It's, you know, I love talking about, I love talking about all these topics. I love seeing people who are thoughtful, who are interested in improving their their own bodies improving their work with their clients um you know i i tell people when they look at our curriculum sometimes i particularly being we're weird in that we we straddle multiple industries meaning we teach strength conditioning coaches athletic coaches physiotherapists chiropractors osteopaths and medical physicians and we put everyone into the same course yeah the same courses because i feel like it's very important for all the professions to know what everyone else has to offer yeah. Because there is a huge lack of trust between our different industries. So we get kind of, you know, people have had issues with that in the past, but I think it's very important. 
I've also been asked a lot because our courses are extensive and it takes people a couple of years to get through our whole curriculum. They go, well, you know, why can't you make it easier? I, go, <laughs> <laughs> I have made it as easy as I can. <laughs> there's just a lot of information. And, you know, what happens is as you learn more, I think it increases our hunger for more. Uh, because whenever you really start digging into neurology, you will start to see ample evidence with every single training uh, experience that you have personally and every time you work with a client, you'll go, oh, I wonder if this particular problem could be related to this. You just It starts to open up your eyes to so mm. many different things. Yeah. Uh, so it is a complex uh, topic, but the, I think what I'm, I want to convey the most to people is I was very scared of neuro, neuro whenever I was in school because it was promoted as this is going to be really hard. It's like learning a second language. And then whenever you get into neurophysiology and then you add in uh, visual and vestibular neurology, it's like a third, second, third, and fourth language. A lot of complicated words, but it's, it's not that hard. It's schematics. It's blueprints. It's like, this is how these things are wired. This is how this is connected. Now I know on a practical, on a realistic level that we are just scraping the surface of how the brain functions. No one knows for sure yet. But in the real world, if you have good basic anatomy, you understand how that relates to a physical movement or physical test, it becomes something very easy to implement uh, into your own training. And the end result, uh, I think, you know, that's what I've always told people. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a natural skeptic at heart personally. Uh, and so I actually always encourage people, whatever course they take, including my own, be as skeptical as possible. Uh, never discount your own personal experiences because I find a lot of people do that as well. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people, study this stuff, test it out, test it on yourself, test it on your clients. Um, and ultimately, we get lots and lots of people coming back going, that's strange, right? It's weird. I, I had no idea that I could have such a profound effect on someone with something seemingly so simple. There's a, in the States, there's a very old story um, about a, a carpenter. So basically the story goes like this. There's a guy, he's bought a, a new house, but it's an old new house. And so he's walking around, it's, it's uh, hardwood floors and it's very squeaky, right? And it's just driving him crazy. So he calls around, uh, he says, Hey, I need the best, you know, floor guy in town. So the guy comes out, uh, gets out of his truck, walks in, walks around the floor for about five minutes, squeak, 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 squeak. He goes, I'll be right back walks out to his truck, grabs a hammer, one nail, comes back in, goes to one board, one spot, smacks the nail in, all the squeaking stops. So then he gives him the bill. <laughs> so the bill is 500 bucks and the, the homeowner looks at him and goes, that seems kind of expensive for one nail. He's like, well, it's $495 for knowing where to put the nail. <laughs> right? So it's, it really is about, uh, for me, the reason that I think it's important to spend time on this information is sometimes the solution is very simple, but the knowledge to make that decision, yeah. you, you know, there's time and effort and, and complexity, I think, that goes into that. Yeah. 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 I think one thing, like, just final thoughts on me is just one thing I really love about your approach is just that you, the respecting the complexity of the human body and the, the beauty that is in that. And yeah, it's going to take a long time to understand it and it's going to take time to uh, figure it all out. And you guys are doing an amazing job. And, and then even as you say there, you're only just scratching the surface and we don't really know what's going on, but we know all, we know potentially these things. And rather than 
seeing it and going, oh, crikey, there's a load of stuff there that like, like if someone's listening to this for the first time, they'll go, crikey, I thought I thought I knew a bit about the body and now I don't even know anything about this, that, the other. Um, it's just encouragement to, to, uh, to, to just, yeah, engage in that complexity and um, yeah, just love the fact that you guys, uh, well, you from driving it from the top of Z Health are, yeah, respecting that complexity rather than trying to, to, dumb it down if you know what I mean um, I and just yeah doing a great that. job yeah I'm no, loving it I'm a I'm a huge proponent I tell people of lifelong learning you know we, if you've coached people in movement for years you've been asked this question how long do I have to do this mm-hmm. <laughs> like people want to finish exercise yeah and it, it's it's a lifestyle it is and I, I think learning uh, and educating ourselves should fit into that same same bucket we're we're all blessed by the work of literally millions and millions of people that have come before us researchers around the world Mm -hmm. all that basically any of us are trying to do is take good information and maybe make it a little bit more useful over time and and i think it is very important to recognize that no one has all the answers right there's a old saying all of us are smarter than one of us uh Mm -hmm. so at some point i we've spent a lot of time trying to build our community um simply because we know that the collective experience as people try to apply this information is hugely informative, uh, not just for me and our courses, but for everyone involved. So, um, yeah, I, it is complex. And I, my biggest encouragement always when I talk about neurology is be patient, be persistent, things take time. But the coolest thing for me is that, and probably the reason I got into this in the first place is if you study this enough, you never run out of things to try. Right. So there's always, there's some hope, right. Yeah. That I think, especially when you read Dr. Deutsch's book and you look at the idea that the brain can change and it does reshape over time. I think that uh, often providing people a goal and the hope that something can improve for them. is the biggest gift we give them. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I get the impression that you find it. It's, that's a fun, it's a fun process as well for you that, to, to try and figure it out. Yeah. Which is nice. You can tell, like, you can tell like by the way that. you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Eric, if, if people want to find out more about Z Health or, or get in touch with you guys, just give us a little bit of um, a heads up on where people can find out more information. Sure. So our website is zhealtheducation.com. All one word, no dashes, no anything. Uh, so zhealtheducation.com. Uh, we're, we've been working on our Instagram. You guys are amazing at Instagram, by the way. Um, I, I hate all social media. <laughs> For, for a number of different reasons. So it's taken us a long time to get into it, but we do have a pretty decent Instagram account now, uh, zhealth underscore performance. So you can check out information there. Um, if you go to our website, we have a weekly blog. We've been doing it for six years. Um, so it's a, a weekly video. And like you said, there's information there on pain and vision. There's a lot of different exercises. You can yeah, the blog's on. amazing, yeah. Um, and just recently, uh, because of covid we took uh, about eight or 10 hours out of our entry course essentials uh, and have made a free online course for people. Uh, so it's called Neuro Fundamentals. Uh, there's a link from our Instagram bio, uh, and you can also find it through the website somehow. <laughs> they just tell me where to stand and talk. I'm very bad at the business side. Uh, the, if you have questions about anything particularly, uh, you can always email us as well, info at chealth.net. That's the important uh, part on that, that email. Um, and we have a couple of education advisors and people that you know, can answer questions, uh, and particularly help you find trainers in your area. 
or if your professionals are interested in education, those are some good ways to get started. Uh, we have a few, again, if people are interested in this and they are not in the industry, but they are thinking, oh, this was cool, the eyes, uh, maybe that's something to look at. We do have some downloadable products as well. You can check it out on the, on the website that basically go into really kind of critical but basic information about the visual system. So it's called the Vision Gym. We have one called the Balance Gym. Uh, and then if people are really into like mobility and loaded mobility with bands, I also have a, one called Strength Gym, which is a fun one that, that adds some, some load to basic mobility work. You've got a great reading list as well. I've picked a few books out of your lead, out of your reading list, which is really helpful for specific areas. So, Good. tons of stuff. Yeah, we did that as well. So, uh, yeah, he's. Uh, we have a downloadable reading list. I actually update that. I'm going to be updating that about every couple of months. I read a ton. Mm. Uh, anytime I find a great new book, I try to include it. So, uh, yeah. and some of the book recommendations are on Instagram as well. Yeah, I, I've bought I've more got, books, that, more I books that I can read at the moment. I've got, I've got a backlog. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at my Kindle the other day. I think I have 1,217 books on it right now. So, oh. <laughs> so we'll make sure that we put um, so those links that Dr. Cobb has just mentioned in the show notes so that you can click straight through to the website or the Instagram. Uh, make sure you do check check the stuff out because it is it is amazing and uh, you're not going to be you're not going to be disappointed. It's going to have a have a have a look into Pandora's box and see see what you can uh, see what you can find. And um, if you've got any questions um, from the podcast, um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot. This, it will have stirred up um, a number of questions. I'm sure in people's minds. Get in touch either with them on Instagram or in with us as well. And uh, as we alluded to, there may be uh, the opportunity to do a part two. I'm sure people would love to hear that uh, for us to do a part two. So send any questions you've got in and uh, we will try to get that set up. But yeah, we didn't even get to talk about skill acquisition, Jacko. I, I wanted know, to talk I about know. that. That's one for another time. We'll talk about nerve flossing and all sorts. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get, we'll definitely, we'll definitely uh, see if we can see that up. If Dr. Cobb will be happy enough to come back again, that would be um, amazing. So other than, uh, we've got nothing else to say this week up other than apart from thank you, Dr. Cobb, for coming onto the podcast. Until next time. Class dismissed. So, Jacko, crikey, that could have gone on, as we said, for a lot longer because I didn't even get through half the questions that I wanted to talk to uh, Dr. Cobb about. Um, but it's, it, again, it was just a deep dive into that brain um, neurology or brain-based training. Every time makes me think that there's uh, there's a lot to kind of take in. And th I think the challenge with some of this stuff, I don't know what, what your thoughts are, but there's there's almost that you can get paralyzed by the amount of information yeah. that you could potentially start to think about. And, and I've felt that from a training perspective of going, well, does this now overhaul everything that I've always thought? And do I need to start building all of these things in? But I think the real key thing is, well, yes, it's a big subject, but there's also some really easy things which we can start to take on board and implement. Yeah, I think taking or just loving the fact that he embracing that complexity that he was talking about and then taking that and just trying to think of ways that how can this how can we simplify this so that we can actually use some of this information and he took us through a couple of um things around you know we did that example with the the shoulder internal rotation that could be any joint in the body but just starting to understand that it might the the restrictions and the tightness we have around there rather than only having one tool of stretching or a second tool of self myofascial release that there are potentially other areas um it, that we can that we can make changes at so i quite like to I think he used the words um this the symphony of those that tone between flexors and extensors and he showed us very simply by playing around with our eyes and doing something with our tongue that there's areas of the brain that we can change what that tone is like and therefore change the range of motion very quickly and it the 
it's not to say that's just listening to that and that gives us the complete answer but i think what it does do it sets us up for a part two definitely but it sets us it just sets the tone of going there's potentially more going on at the in this complex human body than just those simple things that we say um traditionally in the sort of fitness strength conditioning world of do this and this and this and it actually is just bringing in some say well actually what if your eyes are a bit off and you go well actually i can understand that because when i close my eyes and try and stand on one leg balance becomes harder so i know that the eyes play a role um and then yeah when it starts to go into the uh moving your tongue around your mouth that's where it gets a bit weird but um trusting him that there is the reason and rationale and actually that was one of the big things that made a difference to my the rotation of my shoulder mm. i think like if from a top level perspective if you if you dive into what they're talking about as e-health and brain-based training or, or neurology from a movement perspective is all based based around the brain's um, three primary objectives which is yeah. survival movement and prediction the prediction one is where it gets into an interesting state because we then start to think about perception of threat or, or what's what we expect to happen so there's a great picture on one of their courses where i think it's in a baseball game where someone has released or let go of the bat and it's flying towards the crowd and they've got a shot of it and everyone is just this startle reflex yeah. because they don't know where the bat's going to go but they can sense a threat and i think that's one 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 real key takeaway for your training perspective is where is your body at threat? So if, for example, you have got poor end range of movement, that could be because you've got a previous injury, there's some joint instability, there's a lack of uh, neuromuscular connection so that the brain doesn't have control of it. And it's and its response to that is to wind it in and go, right, we're just not going to let you go there because it's dangerous to be there. So starting to remove some of that threat perception or to do something to challenge it will give you that range of movement back. And that's where stretching doesn't work because you're just stretching a joint, but the problem is still there. We're trying to paper over it. And I think that's where, for me, one of the real things that I've helped me to implement some of this stuff is understanding where my brain might be potentially sensing threats. And the example that I talked about in the in the, um, in the the podcast is around that running downhill. And when I've done some of the visual-based drills, like they're really tiring, but really effective. It feels good to be like flexing and changing um, your, your, your vision and field of, of perception, that sort of thing. But they, they've often, like, we've often talked before in our coaches course about, like, fascia and how important fascial connection is and the amount of information that sends into the brain around movement. That's huge. But fascia is compared to the visual system. And we use the visual system as going, we get loads of information from the visual system. But how often do we train it when we're yeah. always focused on training movement? And these are simple things that you can do. And as I mentioned in the, in the conversation, there's a lot of stuff so that they give away for free, simple implements, uh, implementable drills on their blog. Um, and, that, and my, my encouragement is just be brave enough to go and play with it. Don't, don't yeah. put it in the voodoo box um, straight away because it's something that we think has got some value. And it's then about how do you take some of these concepts and, and put them into a program that is going to work? Because don't think about doing it all because it's a huge, huge subject. Yeah, I think yeah. That just to echo that, the encouragement to head over to uh, to some of the links that are in the show notes. Check out some of the resources, the blogs, videos. Really easy stuff uh, to follow in, and just sort of dab your toe in there and see. Uh, ultimately, as as uh, Dr. Cobb took us through, like testing and retesting things to see what things your brain doesn't does and doesn't like, and how does your body respond, and just starting to start starting to to play with those things. Um, I have got some good news as well that like straight away after um, I have had a conversation that uh, Dr. Cobb is happy to come back for a part.
part two. So if you have questions on this, and I'm sure you've got a boatload of them, do send them in to us. You can either email uh, myself or Tim. Tim is tim at scorecardsenates.com. I'm david at scorecardsenates.com. Or get in touch with us on Instagram. Uh, send us a DM in there and we will get your questions and, and bring them together and we can start to then uh, get ourselves ready for a part two if you would. Well, we definitely want to do it. We'd love to hear from you guys um, if you would like to have that as well. So here's a little final thought just to take away with you. Those of you that are trying to learn to handstand, Imagine if you're struggling with your balance, that it might not be fingers or shoulders or core activation. It could be that your vestibular system is just not wired up that well. So could improving your vestibular system, your perception of balance and where you are in space, actually improve your handstand rather than thinking it could be around shoulder range of movement? Because arguably you might get more shoulder range of movement if your brain sensed less threat as a result of being unstable because your vestibular system isn't working. Just leave you hanging with that one. So thank you so much again for listening. We don't take it lightly that you uh, give up probably an hour of your time to listen to these podcasts, so we really do appreciate that. We hope you got a load of value out of it, guys, and we would, if you did, we would love you to do a couple of things for us. One of them is tell other people and share it if you thought that we were adding some value, and also, if you want to, pop over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and give us a five-star review. We like five stars. Four stars, not as good. Keep it five are the best. Five of your best stars, please. <laughs> and if you would like to find out more about the School of Calisthenics and see the best of everything that we have got, head over to our virtual classroom. You can access it from the website at schoolofcalisthenics.com. And that is where we have got literally, possibly, the best calisthenics resource available anywhere in the world. It's definitely the best one we've done. And on that note, until next week, class dismissed.